This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage, Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. When, 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 when you're struggling and fighting for freedom, Right. If you're allowing the system to give you the opportunity, it's like during those protests back in the day when they had to go get a permit right. to protest and for how long. Well, that kind of takes away from the protest as far as I'm concerned. Welcome to the Edge of Sports Podcast. I'm Dave Zirin. We have a very special treat for you this week. I spoke on a webinar alongside NBA resistance legend Mahmoud Abdul-Raouf for a show called Let's Talk BLM that's put on by the organization American Muslims for Palestine. And Mahmoud Abdul-Raouf and I, we chopped it up back and forth about racism and resistance in professional sports. And Mahmoud brings so much wisdom to the table. I mean, you have to hear this. This is so great. Uh, also, I've got uh, Just Stand Up and Just Sit Your Ass Down Awards and more. But first, listen to this. This is going to make your day. Mahmoud Abdul-Raouf chopping it up with me, hosted by the great Felicia Eves for the show Let's Talk BLM, talking racism and resistance in professional sports. Good evening. And welcome to another episode of Let's Talk BLM. I'm Felicia Eves, and I'm honored to be your host for what I believe will be a very exciting and interesting discussion. Tonight, we will be taking on the issue of racism and resistance in professional sports. Athletes in professional sports have always been at the hub of the fight for equity and justice in America. And Black athletes, have always been, have often been the leaders in the resistance. In 2016, former NFL player Colin Kaepernick was ousted from and ostracized by the NFL because of the stance he took during a game by kneeling during the national anthem in protest of the brutal murders of black men, women, and children at the hands of police. And most recently, players with the Milwaukee Bucks basketball team and members of the WNBA as well as other sports leagues went on strike 
in protest of the shooting of Jacob Blake by police in Kenosha, Washington, uh, Wisconsin, sorry. Tonight, we have two guests who will discuss these most recent acts of resistance by professional athletes, as well as the history of racism and resistance in professional sports, and why these acts of resistance by professional athletes are important for the dismantlement of racism inside and outside of professional sports. So I am so pleased to introduce to you uh, Mr. Mahmoud abdul Rauf. Uh, who played with the NBA for nine years as a member of the Denver Nuggets, Sacramento Kings, and Vancouver Grizzlies. In 1996, Abdul Roth sparked controversy when he refused to stand for the national anthem during games, stating that the flag was a symbol of oppression and tyranny. He was subsequently suspended by the NBA after that. And we also have Mr. Dave Zirin, Dave Zirin is a sports editor and writer for The Nation magazine. He also has a blog called The Edge of Sports and is the author of 10 books that discuss the intersection of politics, social movements, and sports. These books include Welcome to the Terror Dome, The Pain and Politics and Promise of Sports, A People's History of Sports in the United States, and The John Carlos Story, The Sports Moment That Changed the World, which was co-written with Olympian John Carlos. So thank you, gentlemen. And I am so pleased to be here and host, hosting with you. And um, as we speak, the NFL is starting their games tonight. Um, so this is an, a very appropriate discussion to be having right now. So I, I'd like to start with Mahmoud. Um, and because um, your story is very similar to Colin Kaepernick's, as a matter of fact, you have been called the original Colin Kaepernick. And I think, you know, you are one of the unsung heroes in this because not a lot of people know your history. So I'd like for you to discuss and tell us a little bit about your story and why is it similar? You know, why do you think this, what you did has impact um, Colin Kaepernick and other uh, professional athletes towards the resistance of racism within professional sports? Well, thank you for having me. Um, and first and foremost, um, and excuse me if the backdrop is is a little challenging. I'm driving, uh, just finished training. But uh, in '96, I uh, actually in '96 I chose not to. Uh, I, I prefer to say stand up for justice, but uh, in, in a nutshell, I view the the flag as a symbol. Uh, of injustice, um, um, the injustice that were taking place in America. And, and for me, uh, this transformation pretty much, I would say that it, it, it started when I was very young, uh, growing up in Mississippi. It doesn't take long to notice that, you know, your blackness makes you different, all right? Uh, and that there's a lot of issues in the world, but even though you, you feel this and you see some of it, you don't quite know at that age how to articulate it. Uh, you just know something is wrong. And it, did, it, it took until I got to LSU uh, and I was handed the autobiography by Dale, Dale uh, my, my coach at the time, Dale Brown. And Malcolm's book, just, you know, the way his mind was fascinated me, uh, how analytical he was, um, how insightful he was. So to make a long story short, I ended up being drafted uh, to the NBA, uh, to the Denver Nuggets. Um, 
and I was having a lot of issues with, you know, my faith at the time, questions. And so I ended up embracing Islam. And it's like once I became a Muslim, for me, uh, being on the road, I was introduced to a lot of people. And these people share with me their thoughts on a lot of different issues, social issues, political issues, economic issues, religious issues. And they would introduce me to books that I've, you know, some authors that I'd never heard of at the time. You know, the Noam Chomsky's, even, you know, the normal Finkelsteins or Finkelsteins, the Randall Robinson's, the Kwanzaa Kunjufu's. And I just started reading, you know, profusely about everything I can get my hands on. And coming across this literature, you come across stuff that you weren't taught in school. You know, about America's role in global affairs, America's role domestically. And, you know, growing up the way I did, seeing these things, uh, the a lot of the things that I saw, uh, uh, it pricked my conscience. Uh, it made me feel some kind of way because I know what it feels like to be poor. I know what it feels like to be looked at, you know, especially even having Tourette syndrome, right? Uh, to be looked at as the other and, and, and discounted to such a degree. And so my heart went off all of these stories that I heard and my orientation to Islam when Allah says speak out against injustice, even if it's against yourself. And I knew that I would have to take a position, uh, you know, reading what Erin Dottie Roy says. And I mention her quote every single time because it always resonates and how once you see something, you can't unsee it. To be silent, to say nothing is just as political an act as speaking out either way you're accountable. So I said, well, shoot. Uh, if, 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 if being silent makes me just as accountable, I might as well go for broke. And so for me, I just began to take those steps of not standing for the flag. Uh, people caught wind of it and they asked me my opinion. I spoke my conscience uh, about what I thought. It hit the fan and went global real quick. And, and that was that was pretty much the started to change uh, my career uh, in the near future. That's very, thank you. That's very, I mean, that's a, a, a great segue into um, Dave. I mean, Dave, you've written 10, you know, 10 books on the history of sports and you've written, a, you co-wrote a book with John uh, Carlos, the Olympian in 1968, who with Tommy Smith, um, you know, put up the power, power sign in the Mexico Olympics. So, you know, what do you think is different in this in this moment that we're in right now? Um, we had, you know, recently just the NBA, uh, the WNBA, and a whole host of, of different sports leagues uh, uh, participate in a, what was basically a temporary strike. Mm -hmm. um, so what do you think is different in this moment uh, versus what we saw, what we've seen in the past, because you've done books on Muhammad Ali and, and other folks who have who have resisted racism inside of professional sports. Uh, Felicia, I promise I will answer that question. <laughs> but, but first, I have to say that I think uh, Mahmoud Abdul Raouf was being way too modest when he speaks about what he did and the legacy he had. I mean, me personally. I honestly view my life as before and after Mahmoud Abdul Raouf made his stand. Wow. I was a young person at the time, I was a sports obsessive, and it absolutely changed the way I saw the intersection of sports and politics and the power of athletes. It was a game changer for me. And if that's true for me, you know it has to be true for so many other people. The second thing I gotta say, and this just speaks to Mahmoud Abdul Raouf's bravery and political conscience, 
is that when Colin Kaepernick took his knee, we have to remember he did it in August of 2016. That was right after the police killings of Alton Sterling and Philando Castile. That was the growth of the Black Lives Matter movement. So while Colin Kaepernick received a great deal of hate for what he did, he also had a lot of people who were willing to support him because there was a movement happening outside the stadium. Mahmoud Abdul Raouf did what he did in absence of that movement. Like, talk about going out there uh, uh, alone. I mean, it's just it's an incredible act of bravery that I think uh, changed a lot of people. And I mean, and I, I just want to give it all the credit and all the flowers that it deserves. Now, <laughs> to your question, um, I think we're dealing with history right now being made before our eyes, and it's history without a compass. There, there's nothing in sports history that compares with what we've seen the last couple of weeks. I mean, when you think for a second about what took place, we're talking about strikes against racism, political strikes that started in the NBA and of course the WNBA and the WNBA has been leading on these questions from the beginning. Now that was shocking, but not too shocking because those two leagues are steeped in politics of social justice. But to see it then go to Major League Baseball which has a very conservative history, to see it go to the National Hockey League, to see Naomi Osaka, the tennis player, be as influenced by this as she was and then not go to a tournament and now she's showing up to the U.S. Open every single round with the name of somebody on her on her face mask uh, that has the name of somebody who was killed by police. I mean, this is an incredible development in the world of sports, an incredible development in the history of sports. And it doesn't only affect people who are fans watching this, I would argue that what they've done is lay down a challenge to all of organized labor to say, what are you going to do to insert yourself in this world historic fight for black lives? That's very good. So I, I also want to know, you know, what, what can we do? I mean, in terms of, of helping people further understand this, and how sports, because we look at sports as a form of entertainment, um, but you know, as you mentioned throughout history, and as you've written about throughout history, you know, uh, sports has played a, a significant role in uh, breaking color lines. I mean, Jackie Robinson, for example. Um, so, how can we? And, uh, you know, the fact that not very many people uh, know about uh, Mahmoud's story is just incredible. Um, I And I have to admit that I barely uh, remember it myself because it kind of got pushed under the rug. So, you know, we're in a moment, you know, the, um, the, the Black sociologist Harry Edwards wrote in his one of his books that he thought that uh, the golden age of the black athlete was over. Do you feel like we're in a resurgence of that now? Or how do you, how do you all feel? Either one of you can answer that. I'll let you go day first. Yeah, I, I think um, Dr. Edwards uh, would, would, if he was here, would certainly say that uh, we, we are in an incredible renaissance um, of black athletic uh, political participation um, in, in a way that that is wider than even what we saw in the 1960s. I mean, I was having this discussion with John Carlos, where he was saying to me, 
you know, we might have been deeper in 1968 in, in terms of the politics we were discussing and arguing and the books we were reading, but we were not as wide as it is now. And sometimes we look back and we don't know in that history that there really weren't a lot of pro athletes who were willing to step out with people like Bill Russell, John Carlos, Tommy Smith, Muhammad Ali. Like those numbers were not grand. Uh, but when you're looking at today, I mean, entire teams stepping out together, entire teams deciding as one that they're not going to play. When you have the Milwaukee Brewers say, we're not going to play because Kenosha's just 45 minutes away and Jacob Blake was shot in the back. And the person who speaks for the team about why they're not playing is a white pitcher named Josh Hader, who they found had racist tweets a decade ago. And this in 2018, there was this big controversy about it. And now he's on the front lines trying to lead a movement on his team against racism. I mean, that just says that we're in uncharted territory to me. And we, we have a renaissance of the political athlete happening and their impact is so, how do you know their impact is so great? Because they're making all the right people angry. Mm-hmm. And if they, if they were powerless, you wouldn't see the president of the United States throwing a temper tantrum about what they do. It's because they, they're, they're, they can't be broken and they have a tremendous platform to be able to speak about these ideas, a platform that's really unequaled in our culture. Mahmoud, what, what would you have to say about that? If I can say something about uh, what Dave said also, um, I definitely would agree with him that, um, and he said it earlier, that this is unprecedented what, we, what we're seeing now in sports. Uh, but I think also what adds uh, to this level of, of, of mass resistance uh, and mass protest that you're seeing is the fact of social media. You know, we didn't have social media then. And now it's easy for people, right, to get on because the media controlled the narrative. Now people are sharing all types of news articles, all types of images. And on top of that, when you look at sports nowadays, you know, the NBA is no longer just white and black people in this country. You got people from all over the world in all these different sports. And in these countries, there are wars that are taking place, right? There are social upheavals that are going on. And they have families, right, that are, that are trapped into these environments, that are suffering, whether it's refugees, you name it. And a lot of these things also, uh, uh, people are not ignorant. It's, it's done uh, with the hand of the United States government uh, attached to it. And so I think also that adds to the fact when uh, uh, of, of, of people protesting and, and, and the numbers increasing and th- and it also adds to the fact that when you look at what's uh, even after the, the George George Floyd, right, and all these other uh, killings that have taken place before, when you see these massive protests in France and in Brazil and all these places, right, I, I think it makes it easier to develop this sense of international solidarity, which eventually, you know, historically, when you begin to connect the dots from what's happening here to what's happening globally is when you really begin to, I think, uh, get people's attention and bring about some some serious changes. So, um, yeah, I just wanted to add that little bit if I could. Yeah, um, and can I say, I, I agree on both those fronts. I mean, first and foremost, we talk about uh, the WNBA and the role they've played in politically developing this process. M- most WNBA players play two seasons. They play in the WNBA and then they play around the world. And I think they've also brought back that sense of internationalism into their league in a global perspective, which, as Mahmoud said, is so important. 
And it's also absolutely true that in the NBA, this international league, this global league, um, that there is a perspective that I think informs the players and what they're doing. And social media is a total game changer in the process. It's a hundred percent, a total game changer because it means that players can go around the filter of what is still an overwhelmingly white conservative sports media and speak directly to their fans. And now often it's like it's, it's everything's been turned on its head. And now the media, the mainstream media is chasing social media mm-hmm. for what the stories are and for what the narrative is. And it's being shaped by people like LeBron James who has more Twitter followers than Donald Trump. And so that that's the dynamic at work that I think has made this uh, so much more explosive and it's allowed it to spread so much more quickly. I also I got to say, I think if if Mahmoud was playing now and did what he did, I mean, there would be like hashtags, you know, like Mm. there would be online campaigns for Mahmoud. Facebook pages would go up. I mean, it would be a whole different kind of dynamic than just one sports columnist in one city tells the story and then everybody feeds off of that. Absolutely. Absolutely. I I mean, you've mentioned um, the labor aspect of it. Um, what do you think about, you know, now it seems like in the NFL, especially the owners are beginning to do a turnaround. Do you think that is something that's going to stick or is it just because, you know, they realize that, uh, you know, the whole world is looking at them and they don't want to look like jerks anymore? Um, you know, what, what, are you, what are your thoughts about that? I mean, the, the owners in the National Football League, the franchise owners, they're dancing as fast as they can right now because they're desperate to avoid what we saw in the other sports. Mm-hmm. And they're desperate to avoid it. Because remember, there are only 16 games per team in an NFL season. And the NFL gets the overwhelming amount of its money from television, not so much from fans. So if you have players sit out a game, that's literally like billions of dollars to the National Football League. So that's why they're doing things like they're going to write end racism in the end zone and let players have decals on their helmets. And they're saying they're not going to punish players who demonstrate during the anthem and the commissioner, Roger Goodell has said, we should have listened to Colin Kaepernick back in 2016. And they're even going to play lift every voice and sing before the first week of games, which uh, for folks who don't know is known as the black national anthem. And so, but for a lot of players, that's not enough. The Miami dolphins, just before we came on this show, they released a video Uh, about why they were going to stay in the locker room during the national anthem. And they said they were doing it because all of these things the NFL was doing was all fluff and no substance. And so they're directly challenging it. And I think that this is quite a moment because who would have thought, I mean, even like six months ago, that you would have people like Dallas Cowboys franchise owner Jerry Jones saying that, you know, he would be okay if his players felt like they had to do something during the anthem. I mean, this is someone who gave over a million to $2 million to Donald Trump. So this is, I mean, it just shows you how struggle changes uh, the dynamics because we just had the summer with the largest number of people protesting it literally in the history of the United States. And I think NFL owners have felt like they have to respond to it. I also believe that the second that they believe they don't have to respond to it is when they're going to stop. Mahmoud, did you have any thoughts about that? I, I totally lost the uh, question. I, oh. I blacked out the screen. 
I was saying uh, that you know we're now in a in a in a time where uh, with the NFL in particular, and I'm and I'm sure it's probably going to spread to the other other sports leagues, where the owners are now you know doing a turnaround where uh, they're now allowing the uh, players to protest and and all of that. So, do you think that this is part of is it just a marketing tool or is this really you know, something that we can actually see uh, that is working towards systemic change inside of professional sports. Anything dealing with professional sports is a big corporation. I don't know what Dave just said, yeah. but, but I, I'm skeptical. <laughs> I'm skeptical. I, I wouldn't get it. Uh, uh, I, I would I would say more so it's for public consumption. Uh, the the momentum now is 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 uh, is is in the favor of uh, pretty much. The, for the lack of a better word, the masses, the the players. I mean, everybody's on to it. So it's it's to their favor to jump on the bandwagon. So I, I wouldn't I wouldn't know. I, I wouldn't say that if you're depending on big business to bring about systemic changes for everybody else, uh, I, I think that it takes a I'm just gonna go to the jugular, it takes a special kind of stupid to think that way. <laughs> I mean, really. Um uh, overall, they're going to do things that's going to benefit them. Even when you look at history, even when you look at, you know, in 63, right, the March on Washington, or even even what happened in the NBA, they're always, when when there's an opportunity to do things in mass, you'll always find, it seems, someone willing to, I think, co-opt, right, uh, uh, what, what, what these athletes are trying to do. They go talk to Obama. And Obama yep. convinces yep. them away from this this mass protest, and and even in the in, in the march on Washington, you know there were a lot of militant voices that were looking to be heard. But then when they go and have these private meetings, they come out after these negotiations, and then the whole tone of it changes. So that's pretty much my answer when it comes to whether it's the NFL, the in the, the NBA, especially the NFL, but actually especially all of them. The NBA, I think, is just a little bit more sophisticated. Mm -hmm. and how they approach it um but you, you know you said something that that i honed in on too you use the word allow now they're mm -hmm. allowing well when 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 you're struggling and fighting for freedom right you don't uh, if if you if you're allowing the system to give you the opportunity it's like during those protests back in the day when they had to go get a permit Right. The protest and for how long? Well, that kind of takes away from the protest as far as I'm concerned. Right. So I, I have problems with it. And I think Charles and I mentioned this, but I think there's a there's a I forget who, what his role is. I think he's a, a psychologist or but Richard Itton had made a point. He said, uh, uh, what did he say? Don't don't let me get choked up right now. He said when we begin to view uh, he views protests. Uh, 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 they caution against viewing protests as inherently revolutionary mm. because once once it becomes routine, he said it's easily easily uh, uh, molded and shaped right. right into the hegemonic understanding of things. These were his words, right? And so it's easy for them now to mold and shape your your protest when it becomes popular, when it becomes fashionable. So now when you see athletes, whether it's the NBA wearing T-shirts, I can't breathe, 
mm-hmm. speaking at this event and speaking as and you said this before Dave and I talk about this a lot you say yes therefore I, you said it of course a whole lot better uh, they're not necessarily against politics it depends on the type of politics mm-hmm. and a prime example of that was when in, in China, what's, what's going on with the Uyghur population? Yes. And yes. the NBA, from what I'm told, they have actually a practice facility there, right? Mm-hmm. And if it's true, nobody they, they don't mention this. Mm-hmm. And so there's business relationships there. But when James Harden and Westbrook they talk about being progressive, we allow our athletes to take these positions. But then when James Harden and, and Westbrook wanted to say something, they were immediately cut off. Look, this is about basketball. Oh, I thought you were progressive. Mm-hmm. I thought they had a voice. So it all depends on the type of politics and if they can take this and control it. So this is what this is what I think about any time an organization, whether it's NBA, the NFL, hockey, you name it, uh, I don't trust it. Mm. Yeah, it reminds me a line of uh, the uh, Polish revolutionary Rosa Luxemburg said, um, sometimes you don't know you're chained until you try to move. And mm-hmm. so, so it's like, if they're letting you say things and then there's the line that you're not allowed to cross, are you really saying something that radical? Right. It's a question people have to ask themselves because if it just goes to the, cause I've been writing about this for a while. Um, I think the NBA, what they've been engaged in is what we could call woke marketing or woke capitalism. I mean, these, their marketers are smart people and the NFL, they get this as well. They get that the young generation is more multiracial and less tolerant of intolerance, quite frankly. You know, people like my daughter's age are just, ha- they've had enough mm-hmm. of the BS in this country. <laughs> they've had enough of the injustice. And it's, it's something to see. It's inspiring to see, especially in these dark times. But these leagues know it too. So they want to be on the right side of history right now. They want people to remember that they were on the right side of history. So the NBA is not going to punish players at this point for taking stands for racial justice because it would make them look like the man. Right. They don't want to look like is the man. The NFL, the power structure has looked like the man for, for, for decades. That's been part of their whole thing is, you know, get behind the shield and we are the shield and all this like that. And what the players have done, though, is they've taken these power arrangements and they've flipped them up in the air. Now, where it lands is an open question, and mm-hmm. it's going to take a lot of independent politics and thought and, and, and intelligence to navigate this because what Mahmoud said is so true. Like, if you're starting, if you're looking at the franchise owners, at the billionaires in charge, if you're looking at them as coalition partners, you almost by definition are going to end up with something tamped down, toothless, and unable to really enact change. And just give a quick example of this, and then I promise I'll stop talking. The Miami Heat and the New York Giants have both said they now have initiatives, which they're saying they are being done with the players, where they're giving money to police departments for more programs about community understanding. Think about this for a second. There is a national movement that's raising the question of defunding the police. And here are the Miami Heat and the New York Giants actually giving more money to the police. And so it just shows you where, how sideways it can go if you're not independent with your own independent set of demands. That's a good segue into what do you both think is the future in terms of 
You know, I've often thought about uh, professional sports as as sort of the the way that players especially are brought into it. It's almost like, you know, bringing them it's also it's almost like another type of slavery in terms of, you know, even how the how for example the NFL and the NBA drafts people. It's like, you know, putting them on an auction block. And so I was wondering, what do you all think in terms of you, Dave? You mentioned how this next generation of young people are are basically done with how things have been done. They've not experienced, um, you know, things in the way that that have been done before, and you know, professional sports, particularly for African Americans has been sort of an entryway to wealth, so to speak. So, you know, as we are looking at the, the protests and as we're looking at this, this moment in history in terms of how things are, are going to change, how do you, do you see that or do you believe that things will change in terms of how young people are looking at professional sports and how, you know, will this be an empowerment time for them in terms of how they are brought into sports and how sports is looked at as um, sort of a, a wealth ticket for for kids who come out of, of, of poverty. I'll let Mahmoud feel that uh, one. <laughs> well, I, I, I'll, I'll, take, I'll take a shot at it. Uh, I mean, um, I don't I, I'm a I'm I'm an optimist, you know, for the most part. But I like to say that I'm I'm a realist, and when I look at the history, um, I, I definitely think this is a great opportunity that we have to to manufacture to bring about change. Uh, is is that going to happen? I don't know. Uh, Dave said before it take it's going to take an extreme. It's going to take a lot to navigate, to analyze, to be strategic, because they've been doing this for years. Mm -hmm. They are pros at it. You know, like you said, bringing people in, even, even for photo ops, bringing mm -hmm. the athletes in to say certain things. Because look, you know, athletes are very visible, just like actors and actresses, very visible. They have a huge platform, a lot of fans follow them. And so they know the power of, of the athlete and the entertainer. Uh, so I, I just, I'm, I, I have to remain hopeful in order to keep pushing forward, but at the same time, I'm realistic that changes never come about easily. Right. And so I'm mm. not, you know, at the same time, I'm, I, a lot, a lot will have to happen. Um, you know, uh, Yeah. I'm, I'm trying to think of all the other points because I had some other stuff I wanted to say because you 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 said a lot that and I, I'm not here sitting here taking my notes but maybe I'll think about it when Dave start talking but I don't I, I don't I don't see anything happening anytime soon uh, unless there's something very radical that takes place even when you look at the NBA or these sports right I've for the longest I've questioned I said why don't and I think you got to point at leadership whether it's the players association the retired players association. You know, when, when you have these moments and it always becomes an issue of, OK, a lot of people want to protest, but there's this issue of, well, financially, we're going to suffer 
My family's got to eat. I get it. Mm -hmm. But when you're fighting for your freedom, there's always going to be quote unquote winners and losers. And you have to think of the bigger picture, right? The society is more important than individuals here and there. Right. And, 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 but, but, but I was thinking to myself, I said, even on, on that front, I said, why is it that, you know, these things happen periodically, right? Where there's, there's lockouts, there's protests. Why isn't there a fund that's created with all this fine money, right? With, with that, what, what do they do with this fine money? Why don't you create this fund that you put up and you invest is protest fund. That yeah. if we need to come at you, right? That we don't have to worry. We got about 30, 40, 50, 60 million put up. If we gotta, if we gotta stay out a year or two, you gonna eat, your family gonna be taken care of. That way there's no issue of, well, man, what am I gonna do? Right? My, I, I need to eat. I just signed this deal. To me, I don't know. Maybe it's too radical, <laughs> but we need radical we need to start thinking radically sometimes just literally even with the system, you know, something was mentioned about police. And I think what's happening now too, because you got this in, in sports, you have this, uh, this global atmosphere of people all over the world and they're beginning to connect dots. Mm-hmm. You know, we talk about police brutality, right? And you talk about defunding and then, and, and, and Dave was talking about how you have the, the Miami heat, is giving money back to the police, you know, and I'm saying to myself at the same time too, there are people that's making, and, and I know Dave is, is Jewish, right? But there's a difference between Zionism and, and Judaism. And so a lot of people are making the connection with, they have these joint operations that, that the uh, Zionist state of Israel are having with police stations, right? Taxpayer dollars. And, and I was reading something on this a while back. And after these joint operations, and you're talking about buying military-grade weapons. Why do you need military-grade weapons dealing with mm-hmm. citizens? And, and all of these other tactics that are being used. Well, they've done a study in that after having these joint operations, in Atlanta alone, the killing of unarmed Black people had risen to 70-something percent after the fact. Yes. Yeah. In a lot of other states. So I'm like, hey, you can't talk about that without talking about this. And it goes back to what, whether it be uh, uh, Martin Luther King, whether it be what our religion teaches us, when one member of the body is in pain, the rest is affected. Injustice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere. That's right. And so when we begin to connect the dots, you know, and people are starting to do that. And, and I think that's, that's what's going to have to take place and real radical changes. I mean, there's a BDS movement, right? Yes. That's going, you know, and even during, I think, the apartheid era, era, there were people that were boycotting. And when you start affecting people's pocket, long term, whether you're talking about the bus boycott, when you start affecting people's pocket and sacrificing, right, that's when really people start, li- unfortunately, but fortunately, that's when people start listening. And I think it's going to have to be something radical like that to start getting people's attention. Say, look, we're not playing. We're willing to eat God doggone uh, uh, uh uh, uh, Cheerios without milk for the year so that people get what, what what's due to them. They get justice. You're not some fictitious, you know, representation or flowery. No, real justice that they get it. So I don't know. I'm just rambling right now. I'm pissed off. You know, but that's, that's, that's just the way I see it. Yeah. 
if this summer and the ways in which not just the police, but these uh, militias responded to the protest movement, if that doesn't make people see that we are all Palestinian, I don't know what will. Uh, I, I mean, I've been writing for years. Other people have been writing for years, of course, about the ways in which uh, police departments in the United States have gone over to Israel for training, have gone over to Israel to come back with military hardware. And so what have they come back with? What have they learned? We've seen the fruits of that this summer. It means shooting rubber bullets in the faces of journalists. You know, they lose eyes. It means uh, spraying people in their eyes when they're already handcuffed and on the ground. It means making sure that there's a layer of humiliation on top of the arrests. And I think people have to understand and connect those dots uh, so we can understand why it's so important as we fight here at home to also make sure we have solidarity with the people of Palestine. I think that's very important. I want to make that point. Um, I also think, get to your question, Felicia, is that we need to get beyond this idea that we think that the athletes are going to save us independent of a mass movement. Um, you know, sometimes, this is especially sometimes I know the way we talk about Muhammad Ali, but we talk about Muhammad Ali as if there weren't the 1960s happening all around him. That's right. Mass movements for black freedom against the war in Vietnam. And, you know, if the 1960s uh, don't happen, Muhammad Ali... He becomes Cassius Clay Jr., the person who brought the showmanship of professional wrestling into boxing. That's who we have, but, but the 1960s collided with his life and shaped him. Similarly, like that's what I mentioned before today about Colin Kaepernick. It was the intervention of the Black Lives Matter movement that irrevocably changed him. And if I can repeat what I said before, that's also to me what makes Mahmoud Abdul-Raouf somebody who's, I think, just so exceptional in his sports history and that he came to his politics through reading and study and meditation. Um, and, you know, that's, I think, something very dangerous to do in this society, uh, to be a person who thinks on that level and to do it in the absence of a movement around you. Uh, but I think this is such an important point because we need to be looking at the streets right now and what the streets are calling for. And one of the things that the streets are calling for is this question of defunding. And to have that out there in the streets and then to have the response of the sports world first be, well, we're going to go on strike because we're fed up with, with these police murders. And then, though, after a few days go along, you hear about these alliances with team ownership talking about, oh, well, we're going to fund the police. I think that then you realize that there's a disconnect there. And so I'll tell you this, though. You, your question was about the future. And I'm, I'm very hopeful about the future um, in this way. Um, sports athletes, they're role models, whether we want them to be or not, they're role models. We can be talk about the values of our system that makes them role models, and that's a problem. But to say they're not role models is sort of like saying you disagree with gravity when you're falling out of an airplane. It's like they're role models. That's just the way it is. And if you look at what these athletes, though, are modeled, for example, when I was growing up, it was you have to have the best car, you have to have the best house. It's about money, it's about materialism. What you see these athletes modeling now, a lot of them, is this idea that you want to have a social consciousness. Mm -hmm. You want to know something about the world. Heck, Jalen Brown, the, the young player of the Boston Celtics, he's quoting Angela Davis in press conferences. Mm. And I'm extremely curious about what is going to happen with this young generation of people who are looking at athletes as role models growing up with that being what is modeling. 
That's a good, that's a good question in terms of uh, looking at how do we, you know, how do we bridge those gaps? How do we kind of uh, look at what happened in the past to help younger people understand that, you know, this is a continuum. We're not, we're not finished by any uh, stretch of the imagination, but this is part of the continuum for the, the, the fight for justice and equality and equity and liberation of people who are who have been marginalized. So, how do you think that uh, you know this moment, but also sports in general, can bridge those gaps? Well, I'll jump in, um, <laughs> and I just want to say that, like, I think we need a revival of what Malcolm X called the most important study, and that's the study of history. We need a revival of people studying history and knowing history. And what I, I think sports history does is it allows, it's, a, it's like a Trojan horse. It allows you to reach young people who are bored with history, who think history is just about dates, who think history is, is, is something that's covered in dust, who think history has no relevance to their lives. A lot of those same people um, will be interested to know some of these histories, Muhammad Ali, Billie Jean King, Mahmoud Abdul-Raouf. Um, for the last two years, I taught a class at the community college on my house on sports history in the United States. And my students would come into the classroom with, they were so smart. They had such a thin level of historical knowledge walking into the room. And they were there because it was a requirement. They didn't want to be there. You know, it was a 100 level class. And by the time we got to start talking, watching some documentaries, some videos, I mean, it was like the history came alive, like through Jack Johnson's gloves and punch, they started to learn uh, something else. They started to learn about um, white supremacy at the turn of the 20th century through the story of Jack Johnson. Uh, they learned about, you know, the... What, what segregation looked like in this country by talking about the Negro Leagues. They learned about uh, what women went through in this country by looking at the way they were denied uh, the ability or the, the space, I should say, to play sports. So, I mean, I think we have to be smart in using sports and sports history as a way of trying to open people's eyes up to the actual history of this country. That's just one way I'm throwing out at. And I, and I agree with you uh, wholeheartedly. Um, about the study of history and, and studying history, you know, it's something about reading. It, 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 usually when you're reading something, something else is going to spark. I mean, something else is going to be presented and you're going to look into that area. Then you're going to look into another area. Then you begin to uh, read things about what privilege is, what racism really is, what nepotism is, right? And, 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 and how, you know, uh, Ajima Aluo said in, in, in connection to history and politics and I mean, even studying ecology. I mean, I mean, I mean, you know, the, the environment. I mean, there's so many things that, and everything. There's an intersectionality that occurs, right? It, it all comes together. But she made a good point. Uh, you begin to understand something very powerful. She said, until we recognize or realize where our privilege intersects with someone else's oppression, we'll never begin to really, you know, make change. And so I think educating ourselves on all of these things, um, uh, uh, and, and that's what, and I'm just speaking individually, and like what you said about even Jalen Brown, right? 
uh, there's an awakening that's occurring with these. It's, it's a new it's a new time. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think social media, even though people may not be reading a lot of books, maybe they are. But it's easy to go on social media and, and, mm-hmm. and pull up an article that someone mm-hmm. posted. And then you begin to formulate these ideas. Then you had to go get a newspaper. You had to go to the library and check a book out. Right. Now all you got to do is get on social media and see things. And people are beginning to have conversations. They were having conversations then, but I think now they're having more conversations because it's like everywhere. Uh, and this is probably something that they didn't anticipate, mm-hmm. right? The, the powers that be like, wow, look what we've created. And and so um, I think it just opens up. And I, I think what we're basically saying is that we have to become, we have to begin to take a deliberate, be deliberately intentioned in educating ourselves and having the tough conversations. Because I think the more you have these conversations at some point, if you're fortunate, these conversations, the more you have them are going to prick your conscience and you're going to feel some kind of way about not doing something. Mm -hmm. Now, how long are you going to talk about something and not put your foot forward to do something? You know, it's like, uh, uh, what's his name? Uh, Frederick Douglass said, I prayed for freedom for 20 years, but I never received an answer until I started praying with my legs. Exactly. You know, so at some point you're like, you know what, man, forget all of this. You know, I got to do something. So, uh, I definitely agree with you. Definitely. Agree with you. Yeah. And what Mahmoud said reminds me of what a lot of the players in the NBA bubble were saying, that figurative and literal bubble that they're in, in Orlando, uh, what they were saying about why they went on strike in the first place is because, you know, th- there was a real debate in the NBA after George Floyd's murder about do we go in the bubble or not? And there were a group of players who said, we should not do it because it's going to distract from what's happening in the streets. And the argument about, well, we could go in the bubble and still make a stand. I mean, that argument was sweetened by the NBA powers that be by saying, we'll write Black Lives Matter on the court. You can put slogans on the back of your uniforms and it'll be like you're making some kind of a stand. So isn't that good enough? And for enough players, it was good enough. But then after the shooting of Jacob Blake, Uh, Fred Van Fleet said this on the Raptors and a couple other players basically said this too. And I'm paraphrasing, but they said, we feel kind of like chumps because here we are with black lives matter on the court and it doesn't mean a damn thing. It doesn't do anything. So they felt like they had to do more. They had to do what Mahmoud said. They had to go with their legs and not just pray for it, not just have slogans on their back. They had to do something. And that, that bridge is so difficult between ideas and action. But when anytime somebody crosses that bridge, I do think it has a ripple effect and inspires others that they can do the same. I've been reading some of the comments from some of the, uh, some of our uh, audience members have been sending, have been sending comments and someone, uh, and I'm paraphrasing this, uh, they, you know, we were talking about, you know, what needs to change um, someone said that uh, they hope that change comes, but I think LeBron James said that he aspires to be, oh, here it is. I hope Dave's right, but LeBron James made it pretty explicit. His goal was to be the first sports billionaire. In other words, there's not one way of thinking or set value that's being modeled. So within that, you know, how do we, I mean, you know, it's, it's, it's going to be difficult to kind of get away from the capitalism of sports. 
but do you think that now that we're in this moment that um, some of that will be kind of dredged away or what are your thoughts on that? You got this one, Dave. <laughs> <laughs> um, look, I mean, I think that, uh, you know, we live in a capitalist society, you know, there's no such thing as a hermetically sealed capitalist free dome like the bubble in Orlando that we live in that is somehow apart from it. So of course, you know, people's values are going to be shaped by that. So then the question comes, how do we change those values? How do we challenge them within a society that is set up to make it so if you don't work, uh, if you, you're, you're, you know, going to go hungry. And so um, I think, and especially in sports has been used throughout its history as sort of a stand in for the American dream, for the ideology of it. Cause they say, look at these athletes. They're just like you, they work hard and they succeed. And if you work hard, you will succeed as well. Even though, you know, the, the playing field might be level but the, the playing field in society is not level at all but it's a way of spreading that myth. Um, I think though that what you're seeing in sports is the values have been challenged the same way the values in our society have been challenged by the struggles that have emerged from the Black Lives Matter movement. I mean, people's very, very fundamental values have been challenged about what they think about the world and how it should operate. And I think you're seeing something similar in sports and it'll be a process. And LeBron James is an important part of that, but he's not the be all end all of what we're talking about by any stretch of the imagination. And, uh, and but one of the very big positives of LeBron James is that because he's chosen to be politically active, it's been over the last, say, decade or so, it's allowed for um, a, almost like a force field on a lot of other players, because if LeBron's going to be outspoken, well, then that provides space for you to be outspoken as well. And how are they going to do to you what they did to Kaepernick? Uh, in that situation, if they're allowing it, quote unquote, for LeBron. Now we have to get to a point where we, we disregard that idea of what we are allowed or not allowed to do, you know, as far as what's what's been what we've been graced with by the billionaires who run the sport. But that's going to be a process. And I think we're on the road on that process, but it might just be a long road, but we have to be willing to run it. Mahmoud, did you have any any thoughts on that? No, I'm not, uh, I, he said it best. I, I'm not about to come uh, on the heels of that right now. <laughs> <laughs> well, we're probably in our last uh, few minutes. We've got probably about seven or eight minutes left of this discussion, which has been powerful. And I thank the both of you for for joining me. Um, do you have, are there any thoughts, last thoughts that either one of you have about uh, what we're seeing right now, the future of, of sports. Um, any last thoughts? I, I just want to say, um, just in general, um, even even programs like this, right? I think we these are the types of programs that every I mean, continue to have them, and 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 encourage other people to continue to have them because the more we we begin to, and of course we don't want to find satisfaction just in having conversations neither, you know, but, but I think these are very helpful. They're enlightening for when they are enlightening, uh, never know who they may impact and influence and then build upon them. 
like, okay, now that we've had these conversations, what next? What steps should we take? And, and start building through these conversations, coalitions, people that think like-minded. Uh, and I mean, look, it, it, it has taken uh, many years to, for the powers that be to control things the way they control them and, and to have us um, subservient in, in so many ways to what they do. And, and so it's gonna take just as long, if not longer to change it. But we have to take these take these steps, these small steps toward that end. And and like Dave said, also, you all always have to keep a level of hope. Right. Uh, that helps you to keep pushing forward. You know, you see the you know, seeing some light at the end of the tunnel, some possibility of change, even though, you know, it's not going to be easy. It never has and it never will be. But, but that's our struggle. Um, so that's that's pretty much, you know, what I would like to say. Dave? I would only say that, you know, the NBA, uh, the right-wing power structure in this country, they, they tried to break Mahmoud Abdul-Raouf and they failed. And you have to say that we need to fight in 2020 precisely because they failed. And that should give us, I think, a sense of hope that, like, they think they're all powerful, but they're really not. A truism is that the bigger they are, the harder they fall. And I think we need to have a sense of confidence, not just in a hope for the future, but in a hope for the present, because this is a very difficult time in this country. And so I take inspiration from what these athletes have done, but I also know it's not an end in and of itself, that it has to reflect into the streets. The streets have to provide the leadership now, the athletes can amplify what's in the streets. The athletes can even shape what's in the streets through their own actions. But it starts with ordinary people whose names we do not know who are out in those streets right now uh, getting arrested, not just in the United States, but all over the world. So, you know, from, from Portland to Gaza, we have to say we stand with you um, in your fight for liberation and self-determination. And it was the people, let me just say this, it was the people, I think, by and large, in this particular case that influence more so the athletes and and the NBA and all of those uh, uh, sports organizations to take positions. You know, remember in Minneapolis, they brought about change, uh, the last I heard, in the police force there. In that short amount of time, the legislation hadn't done in a hundred years. Mm. And that's because and what I what I looked at it as, you know, a lot of people talking about vote for this person, vote for that person. They were voting on the street, mm. and that voting on the street got them those changes. And that that's that's the power of sustaining, you know, that mass level of protest and vigilance and resistance, right? They had them cornered. They didn't want to come out <laughs> because we always outnumber them, and we have to remember that we outnumber. Yes. You know, and sometimes we fail to, you know, to, th to think about it like that. They are small force compared to the population in this country, in this world. So um, definitely, man, it's, I'm, uh, let me shut up. That's it. <laughs> I, know we gotta, I know we got to go. That's it. No, that's it. That's it. That's it. That's it. That's it. That's it. <laughs> uh, my goodness. <laughs> Well, this has been really a very powerful um, 
session. Um, and I think it's probably going to be go down as one of the most popular episodes to date. Um, I think, you know, I'm not a big sports fan. Um, there's a couple of sports that I do follow, which is golf and tennis. But I am, um, a, you know, a history buff. And so, you know, I've, I have followed the life of, of Muhammad Ali. As a matter of fact, I'm in Kentucky right now. So I'm in the land of, of Muhammad Ali um, and, and have read books about John Carlos and, and Tommy Smith. So I think whether you're a sports person or not, um, these discussions, because they are a part of sports is a part of our culture and whether or not you follow sports obsessively or at, at, at all, um, what's going on right now is definitely part of the continuum for what we're seeing um, in terms of, you know, change and hopefully systemic and institutional change. Um, so I just really uh, thank the both of you for taking your time to uh, to share your stories and to share your 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 perspectives on where we're at in this unprecedented and very um, interesting and and remarkable and extraordinary time. <laughs> so you're welcome. So with thank that, you, and oh, you're welcome. We need a Abdul Rauf book. Yes. Oh, yes, please. You have a we need book. a book from Mahmoud. We need that yes. wisdom. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. Because you are you are an unsung hero. I mean, and people need to know your story uh, more widely. Well, 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 I, well, if God wills, it's coming and, I, and I'll tell my story, but I don't know if it's a lot of wisdom, but I, I'll tell you. <laughs> <laughs> Well, with that, um, we're going to end this session. But before I do, um, I want to remind, I want to thank our, our the people who, uh, my production, our production crew. And I also want to remind those of you who have not um, registered for our virtual Palestine uh, advocacy, advocacy Days, which will be uh, next week, starting Monday, September 14th, and running through Friday, September 18th, to please do so. You can do so at uh, palestineadvocacy.com. Um, you'll have the opportunity to talk with um, uh, our congressmen um, and congresswomen about what's going on in terms of how do we get justice for Palestine and how do we roll back um, you know, the complicity, complicitness of the United States in terms of our relationship with Israel. So, um, Please do so if you haven't. If you haven't registered, please do so. So thank you again, and um, this uh, uh, look. Be on the lookout for more discussions like this. And I uh, bid all of you a very safe and good night. We'll be back right after this, but first a quick word from the sponsor of this podcast. The Nation Magazine. Okay, look, the need for independent journalism has never been more important, and The Nation brings it each and every week like they've been doing since 1865. I'm serious. This is what you gotta read. It's The Nation Magazine. Go to thenation.com slash subscribe, and please never forget that when you support The Nation Magazine, you are also supporting the continued existence of this podcast. So please subscribe. Go to www.thenation.com slash subscribe. And now, back to the Edge of Sports podcast.
Thank you so much to Let's Talk BLM. Thank you so much for American Muslims for Palestine. Thank you to Felicia Eves and Mahmoud Abdul Raouf for the permission to broadcast this over our podcast. Uh, all I wanted to do now is acknowledge the Just Stand Up and Just Sit Your Ass Down awards because they're both very significant. Uh, the Just Stand Up award this week Stand up. goes to the Miami Dolphins team. And folks need to listen to this first and foremost. This is a short video put out by the Miami Dolphins explaining why they wouldn't be coming out for the anthem for the opening week of the NFL season. Is it authentic? That's the mystery. Or is it just another symbolic victory? Now there's two anthems. Do we kneel? Do we stand? If we could just right our wrongs, we wouldn't need two songs. We don't need another publicity parade. So we'll just stay inside. Until it's time to play the game. Whatever happened to the funds that were promised? All of a sudden, we got a collapsed pocket? The bottom line should not be the net profit. You can't open your heart when it's controlled by your wallet. Decals and patches? Fireworks and trumpets? We're not puppets. Don't publicize false budgets. Ask the pundits, and we shouldn't have a say. If you speak up for change, then I'll shut up and play. If we remain silent, that would just be selfish. Since they don't have a voice, we're speaking up for the helpless. It's not enough to act like you care for the troops. Millions for pregame patriotism. You get paid to salute. Lift every voice and sing. It's just a way to save face. Lose the mask and stop hiding the real game face. So if my dad was a soldier, but the cops killed my brother, do I stand for one anthem and then kneel for the other? This attempt to unify only creates more divide. So we'll skip this song and dance. And as a team, we'll stay inside. We need changed hearts, not just a response to pressure. Enough. No more fluff and empty gestures. We need owners with influence and pockets bigger than ours. To call up officials. And flex political power. When education is not determined by where we reside. And we have the means to purchase what the doctor prescribed. And you fight for prison reform and innocent lives. And you repair the communities that were tossed to the side. And you admit you gained from it and you swallowed your pride. And when greed is not the compass, but love is the guide. And when the courts don't punish skin color, but punish the crime. Until then, we'll just skip the long production and stay inside. For centuries, we've been trying to make you aware. Either you're in denial or just simply don't really care. It's not a black-white thing. Or a left-right thing. Let's clean the whole bird and stop arguing about which wing. Boom, that was super powerful. Um, and thank you, Miami Dolphins, for calling out the fluff that the NFL is putting forward as a substitute for anything resembling an agenda for racial justice. The Just Sit Your Ass Down Award. Sit your ass down. I mean, it just has to go, it has to be a tie. Let me put it like that. To the quote unquote fans at the opening night game between the Kansas City Chiefs and the Houston Texans who booed the teams for engaging in a moment of unity before the game. Keep in mind, this wasn't a protest during the anthem. This wasn't a protest that involved anybody taking a knee. All this was was both teams coming out and linking arms at uh, midfield. And this was enough to produce booze from the crowd. And it's so stunning. It was on September 10th. So the day before September 11th, where we're all supposed to be unified, a showcase of unity against racism engendered booze. Now, there's a big part of me that just wants to slam the fans of Kansas City uh, because, you know, then they go right into doing the tomahawk chop and all the rest of it. But listen, 
it's not just on the fans. It's also on the National Football League because this is a league that has sent a message to its fans over the years that this kind of behavior is not only tolerable, it's patriotic. I mean, they're the ones who blackballed Colin Kaepernick. Uh, They're the ones who have drugged their feet or dragged their feet around anything resembling an agenda for uh, any sort of uh, uplift whatsoever. And they're also the people who are now trying to cover it up real fast to avoid a player's strike uh, with such things as playing Lift Every Voice and Sing, all the fluff that the Miami Dolphins are calling out in their video. So this is on the NFL for how they've conditioned their fans over the last four years since Colin Kaepernick took that knee. So to the NFL, first and foremost, and also to the fans over there in Kansas City, fans in quotes, sit your ass down. We'll be back right after this with a quick word from Edge of Sports. Hey, everybody out there. This is Dave Zirin with the Edge of Sports podcast. People got to know that we put this podcast on with elbow grease and and bubble gum on a weekly basis. And we're proud of the work that we do. We love it. But we can't do it without support from you, the listener. So please go to patreon.com slash edgeofsportspod and support the podcast. That's patreon.com slash edgeofsportspod. Any little bit you might give to support the podcast actually makes a huge difference to the work we're trying to do. That's patreon.com slash edgeofsportspod. We appreciate you. Make no mistake about it. And now... Back to the Edge of Sports podcast. Well, that's all the time we have this week. Thank you so much again to American Muslims for Palestine for the show Let's Talk BLM, for Felicia Eves and Mahmoud abdul Raouf for the permission uh, to broadcast that show. Hope people enjoyed it. I think it was something special. Um, but, you know, a part of it is that I'm kind of a mark for Mahmoud abdul Raouf. I think he's freaking brilliant. Um, thank you for everybody out there listening. Thank you to my producer, David Tigabu. Uh, for everybody out there listening, please stay frosty. We are out of here. Peace. Oh, pressure, oh.
This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done. When you visit Arizona, time is measured in moments, not minutes. Like the moment you see the Grand Canyon for the first time. Visit a new state of mind. Learn more at hereyouareaz.com.